This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit in partnership with Lancer Broadcasting Corporation and Supertalk Mississippi Media. Thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. I'm Joe Lott Sami, your co-host, joined by economist Natasha Serdorch, co-founder of International Leaders Summit and the Jerusalem Leaders Summit. America's Roundtable guests include leading voices from business, government, media, energy, technology, healthcare, and the broad policy arena. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, and Spotify. Visit America's Roundtable at americasrt.com. americasrt.com. Follow us on Facebook, America's Roundtable, and Twitter at americasrt. We invite donors and advertisers to reach us by visiting our website, americasrt.com. Welcome to America's Roundtable. This weekend on America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., we are truly honored to welcome to this program a great American patriot, George Allen, former governor of the Commonwealth of Virginia. Mr. Allen served the Commonwealth of Virginia for more than 20 years as governor in both bodies of the United States Congress and as a delegate holding Thomas Jefferson's seat in the Virginia General Assembly. Sworn in as governor in 1994, George Allen brought sweeping reform that made Virginia a national model in economic development, public safety, education accountability, and creative government. As a self-described common-sense Jeffersonian conservative, Allen pushed through cutting-edge reform with bipartisan support in a legislature held by the opposition. Elected to the United States Senate in 2000, George Allen continued to advocate policies to make America and Virginia a leader in innovation and technology. And without any further delay, welcome Governor George Allen. Good morning to you, sir. Welcome, Governor Allen. Uh, Good morning to all y'all, Natasha and Joel, and all your good, informed, educated, leading activist listeners. <laughs> Wonderful <laughs> indeed, sir. Thank you so much, Governor Allen. Um, the U.S. national debt is currently at $31.6 trillion. And according to the Congressional Budget Office 2023 to 2033 Budget and Economic Outlook report released in February, federal debt held by the public is projected to rise from 98% of GDP in 2023 to 118% in 2033 to $47 trillion in debt. An average increase of 2% points per year. This increase is mostly driven by the growth of interest costs, which we are paying for the already incurred debt and mandatory spending which outpays the growth of revenues and the economy. According to the CBO, those factors persist beyond 2033, pushing federal debt still higher to 195%, almost twice, of GDP in 2053. These projections are based on the assumption that the GDP will grow at the rate of 2.4% for the next four years and then slow down to 1.8%. However, in a recent conversation with former congressman and professor of economics, Dave Brad, he shared with us that the productivity growth for the next decade is just 1%. Uh, Governor Allen, we have to stop this unsustainable path of overspending. 
Since 1998, Congress has failed to pass a budget in seven of the last 15 fiscal years. <laughs> the budget should entail the decision about what expenditures shall we have during the next year and how exactly shall we pay for them? What items can be cut? You were in Congress, uh, Governor Allen, when the budgets were balanced. How can we bring fiscal responsibility back to the Congress? Great questions uh, and and very frightening, dangerous directions in our country that you just Natasha delineated, uh, and the, the, you know that the CBO, the Congressional Budget Office, said, "Well, this is how bad it's going to be ten years from now in 2033." Well, I'm here to tell you this problem is here right now, presently, uh, and the rise in interest rates are going to put the the cost, the debt service, the payment of interest is going to possibly get past what Social Security is. Uh, and when you think of the federal government and, and leadership is prioritization of, of responsibilities at the state level, priorities are education and law enforcement, and you pay for it with a strong, vibrant economy where people are working and, and businesses are prospering and you get tax revenue. At the federal level, number one paramount responsibility is national defense. This year, paying interest on the debt is going to be higher, more than the entire Department of Defense budget. Mm -hmm. And and this is this is dangerous. This is dangerous. And the 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 problem that you there's so many problems in Washington. The, one of them is that they never get a budget done on time. When I was in Congress, I, I proposed a balanced budget requirement in the federal constitution, line item veto authority for the president to knock out unnecessary wasteful spending and you know, pork barreling. And third, if members of Congress do not get appropriations bills done on time by October 1st, you withhold their pay, mm -hmm. withhold their pay. If you had someone, Natasha, working on a project at your house or you're getting your car fixed, you're not going to pay them until the job's done. Right. And uh, and it, to me, you got to get back to basics and the, the, the rise in interest rates. And they've gotten away with it these last few years where the debt has tripled. They've gotten away with it because interest rates were one percent. So it didn't cost much. Well, interest rates are tripling right. and the interest rates are going to. Be, continue to go up for the next several years. And this is completely unsustainable. So here's the solution that needs to be done. 49 states have a balanced budget requirement in our constitution. The federal government does not. Your household, your business, every municipality has to have a bu balanced budget. The only one that doesn't is the federal government. Fortunately, in our wonderful constitution, if Congress doesn't act, the states can act. And in, under Article 5 of the U.S. Constitution, you can have a convention of the states. I'm on a group that is proposing this, and we're up to 20, you need 33 states to call for a convention for the sole and single purpose of a balanced budget. Nothing else, nothing about guns, nothing about anything else, just a balanced budget. There are 27 states that have passed a resolution for this convention of the states. South Carolina soon will be doing it. We're focused on Idaho and Montana. Uh, and we've also put together a governor's debt council, uh, Governor Sununu of New Hampshire, the good live free or die state. 
uh, is heading it. Asa Hutchinson, uh, recently former governor of Arkansas, has owned it. The governor of Oklahoma, Kevin Stitt, uh, is also on it. And so the, the goal is to have enough states. You get to 32, 33 states, and Congress then will act. They'll be fearful of a convention of the states. Uh, Ronald Reagan talked about he wishes he had gotten a balanced budget through. This is taking up Reagan's mantle. Thomas Jefferson in the beginning said if there were one amendment to the Constitution he'd want, it's a requirement that didn't allow the federal government to borrow right. money, uh -huh. which is, is what deficit spending is and loading future generations with perpetual debt. So to me, that is the only thing that will get the federal government to have to make priorities. You can't say yes to every spending uh, request. You need to set priorities. And uh, and the size and growth of the government has just uh, ex expanded so much through this pandemic. And, and paying people not to work, you know, after the pandemic's over. So the point is, we need to get control of our federal government. And the way to do it is with a purse. I do think a, a paycheck penalty would help. Mm. I'm hopeful that the House of Representatives, this is one of the things after all they're fussing and uh, electing the, the the new Speaker of the House, one of the things that they wanted to do is get all these appropriations bills done on time, send them over to the Senate, but do your job. It's a one thing that every member of Congress has to do. It's one job, and that is get appropriations or budget bills done on time, rather than these continuing resolutions that just continue spending and, you know, without any scrutiny. And then, you know, at some point around Christmas or New Year's or, you know, whenever they, they have some omnibus bill that no one knows what's in it and, and they just get away with it uh, rather than, than making the hard choices that you're elected to do. So that's, to me, is the solution is this national campaign for a balanced budget amendment. Uh, and it's more important than ever before that it get done because we can't, we, you know, if it continues, the country's going to have to go bankrupt. Mm -hmm. I mean, social security's at risk. Mm -hmm. Medicare is at risk. Our national security's at risk. Our economic competitiveness is at risk. And it just can't continue. Uh, with this blissful abdication of responsible right. governance. And Governor Allen, uh, you mentioned you need six more states. And for our listeners, yeah. how do we get these states on board? The state legislatures have to have a, a, a call for a convention. The states that have passed them, New Hampshire, uh, Pennsylvania, uh, West Virginia, Ohio, Indiana, Michigan, Wisconsin, Iowa, Missouri, Arkansas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, Florida, Tennessee, North Carolina, and then all the plain states from Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas, Nebraska, the Dakotas, Wyoming, Utah, and Arizona, and Alaska have passed it. So those are 27 states. We are, this, our organization for the state led initiative is focusing on South Carolina and looks really good that South Carolina will pass it. Uh, and then the other two states where they have a Republican legislature, which is essential, is unfortunately, right. or at least close, are Idaho and Montana. And Minnesota, if that switches over in the next election cycle, will be. And, and then Virginia. We have elections in Virginia right. this fall. And if the Republicans can hold the House of Delegates and take over the Senate, then Virginia uh, could be that, that next state. That's so crucial. Kentucky's another opportunity 
as well. So, so we've made a lot of progress. We're, we, you know, we're trying to raise money and all that. Everyone's trying to raise money, but we're getting good support uh, from governors who understand this. And I think uh, the people, you, know, you, you can grouse and complain about what's going on in Washington. And we've delineated all the dangers of the skyrocketing interest on the debt that's going to take up, you know, it's, it's going to take up 15 to, to potentially up to 20% of the entire budget. Mm. It, you know, if it's a household, here's your equivalent. If it's like if you're making $46,000 a year and you have a credit card debt of 314000 or just say you make 50000 a year and you have debt of $300,000 on your credit card that you have to pay. Right. Yeah. And it's just, it's just ridiculous. No way. You have to sell everything. Well, you have to sell everything. And, and with the federal government, I suppose we could sell off our aircraft carriers and federal buildings and the national parks and, and that all that kind of stuff. But that's not the approach you need to take is you need mm -hmm. to say, let's live within our means. Right. Now, Absolutely. part of it, you know, the, the one side will say, well, we'll have to raise taxes. Well, you, you can't raise taxes over 100 percent. And that that's harmful. Then you want to have growth. And part of when you get revenue is with growth and making sure you have, you know, competitively lower taxes internationally, uh, reasonable regulations, productive energy policy, and a skilled, capable workforce. Mm -hmm. That's what states are winning. And the same for, for a country. And, and you don't want to have, you know, higher taxes. The 2017 tax cuts that passed were great for our country. They made it made the United States instead of having the highest taxes. That's right. In the world on unincorporated businesses, we got better than average, and there was tremendous uh, increase in investment in the U.S. Money came back, repatriation right, yes, is what they yes. called it from other countries, and there were more jobs created and pay increased mm -hmm. for for workers. Then the pandemic hit, but but those principles still apply that were used by Ronald Reagan and, and in the 2017 tax cut as well. Absolutely. You've mentioned the 2017 tax cuts, which really made an impact in America. We've got a little side story to share about how this tax revolution actually began. And that is what Reagan did earlier in the 1980s and what Thatcher did, uh, as well as what Alvin Rabushka did with the flat tax in Eastern Europe. So what we saw happening in Eastern Europe at that stage was in Estonia, the Prime Minister Martlar implemented the flat tax, the rates <laughs> went down, and the flat tax countries actually brought the rates down to 10%. And that put pressure on Europe, interestingly enough. And what we also experienced in Europe was the fact that Western Europe began to reduce their tax rates because they were competing with the low tax rates of Eastern Europe. And uh, in fact, the EU tax rate went down to 20%. And that put pressure on the United States of America. So, you know, as you talk about competition, competition matters in case of the taxes and taxation. This is why this is why I love being with you and Joel and Natasha. I just pulled out my one of the books international that I use. It's the 2022 Index of Economic Freedom. What they did in Estonia your listeners are really benefit from the information from you. Estonia it's, it's just great. They put in Milton Friedman's principles, and they and and I remember uh, folks are saying, "Well, no one's ever put these principles into effect." Yes, and they said, "Well, it makes sense to us," and they did it, and it worked. 
and you look at the countries that are, have the most economic freedom, Singapore, Switzerland, Ireland, New Zealand, Luxembourg, Taiwan, Estonia, Netherlands, Finland, Denmark, and so forth. Ireland, when you think of the Irish, they hardly, they, they, you know, historically, they prospered when they got the heck out of Ireland, whether they came to the U.S. or Canada or even as prisoners to Australia. Ireland, about 10, 15 years ago, cut their taxes exactly. to the lowest, lowest in Europe. And the other European countries said, oh, we need to harmonize <laughs> these rates. You know, this is, this, you know, and Ireland's growing for the first, you know, in, in the last decades, they've become the Celtic tiger and they're growing. They're a, a, a great hub for innovation and um, their population's growing rather than having an exodus of people. So the rest of the, the countries in, in Europe ought to learn from Ireland, not say, oh, you need to raise your rates so you don't have a competitive advantage. No, learn from what the Irish have done. And it's been a, a great success story. Absolutely. And we certainly were very concerned when President Biden was jumping on board with this whole World Economic Forum concept of tax harmonization. So what you've said is so true. Rather than tax harmonization, which may sound like a good term, harmony and all of that, oh, yeah. we need actually tax competition. And uh, hopefully one day we will see the flat tax in America. <laughs> and that would certainly uh, bring greater economic growth that we believe uh, for our republic. Yeah. Well, the fact is, is that, the, again, these countries, if, you know, the ones that are mostly free, these these top 10 are, are doing very well. Absolutely. And it's better for their people. And if you want the best example in the entire world, and people may have seen the satellite picture of the Korean peninsula at night. Yeah. And South Korea, you see where all the lights are, and they have electricity, and it's, you know, it's a top 10 booming, you know, economy. Uh, and North Korea... Uh, it's just a little dim light where Pyongyang is, and they don't have electricity, so they don't have communication. You know, they don't have the internet, they don't have refrigeration, and and the people in North Korea are are shorter, shorter lives, shorter height, uh, and it's the difference between freedom and totalitarianism. Mm. And it's it's not as if you're comparing people in Sicily to people in in Norway. It's a you know same genetic DNA. Same climate, same you know terrain, and so it shows that a big government or totalitarian or autocratic government is starving people on their own land. Absolutely, and, and, and not only that, they not have prosperity; they have shorter, poorer quality lives. There's exactly. more, you know, child uh, mortality rates, and 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 the kids are shorter, shorter lifespan. Yeah, exactly. And Governor George Allen, on the issue of energy security, I know we've talked about this in the past, the energy crisis in America, the ongoing debate for the push for renewable energies at the expense of fossil fuels, and the realities on the ground with inflation impacting Americans, the war in Europe with Russia, the aggressor, has created sort of this perfect storm, and it's impacting economic growth in America. And we all know and understand that without abundant energy, affordable energy, America's economic growth is placed at risk. 
And that comes down to jobs, family budgets, and how companies, specifically small and medium-sized enterprises, function on a week-to-week basis and plan for the future. And we realized while we were in Europe that... Interestingly enough, Germany is now firing up its coal plants now uh, so that they can actually heat up the homes during the winter season. And um, in fact, uh, Governor Allen, in October 2022, you joined Governor Glenn Youngkin as he proposed a $10 million investment in the upcoming budget to turn Virginia into a leader in energy innovation. And Governor Youngkin is interested in establishing a small modular reactor in the southwest Virginia within 10 years. And Governor George Allen, what are your thoughts about the concerns of this energy crisis that we're facing? And what would be your recommendation to governors across the nation and legislators on Capitol Hill about the importance of energy independence? Well, Joe, again, a great summary of of many things. We are blessed in America to have the most energy resources of any country in the world. It is a blessing. It is not a curse the way some people look at it. We have more coal, more oil, more natural gas. And we also have the creativity and innovation from the private sector, from the free enterprise system that for natural gas, for example, we thought, 15, 20 years ago, we're running out of natural gas. But because of the creativity of the free enterprise system with hydraulic fracking, directional, and horizontal drilling, we have an abundant supply of natural gas, which we can also export as liquefied natural gas as a way of helping our European allies who are captive customers of Russia. And and, and in fact, Italy's now getting some, they're putting in some pipelines out of Algeria and uh, Libya, uh, rather than having to get liquefied natural gas or or relying on Russia. Uh, Here's the criteria you want for energy, is you want something that is affordable and reliable. Mm. That's, I mean, that's your your, your criteria, preferably American. You want it American because it means jobs, especially in in the producing uh, communities. And that helps out every business. They could be involved in oil and gas or coal, but it helps out the restaurants, the shops, the stores, everything, housing prices, all the rest benefit from it. And that's how communities pay for their schools and, and local public services from severance taxes on oil or gas or coal. It also is a national security issue. And hopefully this invasion of Ukraine by Russia has improved Americans' energy literacy uh, with it. And it's, it's a balance of trade issue. It is a national security issue. And anything that we're, what's been going on these last few years is Americans' policy, thinking we're going to run our economy on these unreliable, expensive sources, uh, it just doesn't make any sense. Just data centers, the number of data centers mm-hmm. that are creating are for all our you know, financial and communications and medical records, all that kind of stuff. So if you want to look at what's, what is affordable and reliable, if you have hydroelectric, that's really affordable electricity, but that you're limited by your terrain. You need the Colorado River or the Columbia River or the Tennessee River you know, for TVA and so forth. Uh, geothermal, uh, it can be uh, very affordable, but again, that is a geological matter. Now, where you could everywhere that you can have affordable and reliable energy, it'd be either coal, clean coal technology, Germany is an example 
you mentioned Germany's importing coal. This has been great. In Virginia, Norfolk is the biggest coal port in the in the world. And so you see these these bulk carriers coming out of Newport News and Norfolk bringing coal to, to Europe and they, because they realized wind and solar wasn't going to keep the German economy going. Um, and so coal, natural gas is another really affordable uh, approach. The other is nuclear. Uh, and here in Virginia, there's this boondoggle going on with uh, 176 wind turbines. They're going to put out uh, 27 miles off of the coast. They're going to operate maybe 40% of the time. The, the monopoly uh, utility here says we don't want to guarantee that because we don't know if the wind will blow. We can't, which is kind of the point, but it's going to, but it's, it'd be like buying a car. You go to a car dealer and the car dealer tells you, all right, we have this new experimental car. It'll operate three out of seven days of the week. <laughs> Maybe you won't be driving that week. Well, would you buy it? Heck no. Now, if you want a reliable, emissions-free source of electricity, advanced nuclear is the way to go. We have near here in our, our, our naval ports, naval bases, uh, aircraft carriers that run on nuclear. We have submarines that run on nuclear. If you hooked up the, the USS uh, Ronald Reagan aircraft carrier, naturally I picked that aircraft carrier, but that that the the reactor on that uh, would service about thirty seven thousand homes, which means you know you could double the number of people that live in a home. So that you know a small city. What well, Governor Yunkin, and I'm so happy he's doing this, is talking about these small modular reactors and site them on reclaimed coal mining sites in Southwest Virginia. Folks in Southwest Virginia, people in the coal fields, energy areas are energy literate, and they look at this as a way of diversifying their economy. And, and you wouldn't just have one small modular. You could, you could have eight, you can have 10, you can have 12. So if you want reliable uh, electricity that doesn't have blips and surges or not working several days of the week and so forth, uh, nuclear is the approach. So that's and as far as solar is concerned, solar photovoltaic has its place. I, I, it can be a supplemental uh, source of it. Uh, wind, in my view, is absurd, and it's even more stupid uh, and costly to put it off off the coast because you have the the corrosion from the sea air, the maintenance of it, the transmission lines, and so forth. But I think solar has 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 a place. But for baseload, this is what matters, is baseload, it's got to be coal, natural gas, or advanced nuclear. I know this is blasphemous to say it on nuclear, but we can learn from the French. The French get 75% uh, of their electricity from nuclear. That's right. And what they, what they do that is really, because people worry about high-level radioactive waste. That's an understandable concern. What the French, because every nuclear site in the United States is a high-level radioactive waste storage site, and it can be stored safely, but people are understandably worried about it. What the French do is they reprocess, they recycle that uranium, that, that fuel, so that by the time that it is spent, it is, is they vitrify it, they encase it in glass. And it is, and, and the, the half-life is the term you use for radioactivity. 
is maybe 140 years as opposed to 14,000 mm. years. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and, and so if the French can do it, mm -hmm. Americans can do it as well. And the only thing that's holding America back is, is, is not the lack of energy. It's not the lack of creative people. It's our leadership that is, is, is refusing to unleash our energy resources and the creativity of the American people. And the American people, by the way, on nuclear in Virginia, that's a, it's an important part of Virginia, not just for the, the submarines and, and the aircraft carriers that are made and manufactured here, but in Lynchburg, there's also a French company, it's Framatone. It's a French atomic energy company. It works with BWX, which is Babcox and Wilcox U.S. company. So we're attracting the best uh, into, into our country. But, you know, really the only nuclear power plant that's getting built is by the southern company around Savannah uh, in our country. But I think the future, nuclear has got to be part of that future. And I think the small modular reactors that Governor Yunkin is advocating for to me, has a great deal of promise, and, and it's a good prospect for reliable, baseload, emissions-free energy. Governor George Allen, Natasha and I just recently were in Brussels. We were traveling through both Eastern and Western Europe, and we certainly realized the great threat that Russia poses, not just only to Ukraine, uh, but to our Western civilization, to Western Europe, and to the NATO alliance. Now, we also have realized that there is genuine concern that is being expressed by a great many of our fellow Americans about the cost involved in supporting Ukraine. Uh, at this stage here, we're anywhere between 110 uh, to perhaps uh, the possibility of $150 billion of support for Ukraine. And this includes military assistance, uh, humanitarian aid. And we haven't even talked about the cost of rebuilding Ukraine or even the concept of bringing this war to an end. Now, Senator Ted Cruz has uh, also expressed concerns about this here by sharing that uh, we as Americans ought to look at it not just only from a cost point of view, uh, but also from the perspective of our American leadership. And whereas we talk about this concern perhaps dividing the Republican Party or the center-right community or our fellow conservatives, what are some of your concerns that you would relay in that aspect of it? And perhaps maybe you can uh, weigh in on the concerns about the Europeans not paying their fair share. Uh, what should America do uh, as we realize this great threat and how also China is testing this whole process and seeing how we respond uh, to this uh, great problem that we're facing today? Joel, everything you said is exactly correct. Let me just start with what you mentioned with China. And, and where all of this, I think, started, and that is American weakness with the disastrous fiasco of our withdrawal from Afghanistan uh, back in August of, of 2021. China saw that, Russia saw that. And they said, the U.S., they don't have the stick-to-itiveness that you need, they, they, they'll weaken, and so forth. And the big worry with China is what, you know, they, they have contentiousness with India, and obviously what they're trying to do in the South Asia Sea with, with territories that are Philippine, part of the Philippines. And then, of course, the greatest worry is an attack on Taiwan. Uh, it's, it's gotten so worrisome there that Japan has changed their 
constitution to build up their military. South Korea is very worried about what all's going on there and whatever you know, North Korea might might do. Now, as far as Russia is concerned in this situation, you know, I'm Reagan Ranch presidential scholar for the Young America's Foundation. So I often ask, what would Ronald Reagan do in this situation? Ronald Reagan would apply, would, would supply the freedom fighters in Ukraine fighting against the autocratic totalitarian invasion by Putin, the Russians. There's no question that Ronald Reagan, and it wouldn't just be the U.S., it needs to be NATO. NATO has, actually what Putin has done has united NATO like it's never been uh, united before. The fact that Sweden and Finland have joined or want to join, they still, Turkey still has to agree on their kind of the impediment to it. But I think NATO's united. Um, the, the question of whether our allies, the, the, the Poland, for example, is providing a lot of aid. And they're, they're taking people from Ukraine. There's been millions that have left Ukraine, you know, mostly women and children. Uh, but they've taken them into their homes. They haven't put them in tent cities and that sort of an approach. So many of the Central European or you may say Eastern European countries, particularly Poland, has been very, very helpful, as, as have others with it. And uh, and the Germans are going to be selling or, or sending some of their tanks. And, and, and you want to make sure everyone's pitching in. And Europe really is on the front lines of this. And you get... You say Ukraine, but we mentioned earlier Estonia. Russia already had, had cyber attacks decades ago against against Estonia, exactly. and and they could be adventurous in those those Baltic countries. They're already trying to they have that Transnistria area, uh, which is Moldova. They make good wine. It's a small country, but still, it's it's right next to Bulgaria, Romania, Ukraine, and so forth. And so it's. It, Russia wants to be on the move, and and Putin thinks the greatest tragedy of history was the fall of the Soviet Union. You ask anybody from the Adriatic, from former Yugoslavia to the Baltic Sea, and I'm talking about Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Serbia, you know, Croatia, all all those countries. They they love breathing that sweet nectar of of liberty rather than being behind the Iron Curtain or under a under socialist communist dictatorships so uh but putin you know likes his approach uh of, of his goal is is getting more land back and it's 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 a very imperial approach george will wrote something just recent i read it this morning and he wrote putin can only win if ukraine's allies choose to lose by not maximizing their moral and material advantages. The point is, is if the, as Margaret Thatcher would say, if we go wobbly, the U.S. and NATO, if we go wobbly, Putin wins. And that's what he's counting on. So we need to send, in my view, the armaments, and I'm talking about conventional armaments, exactly. uh, to the Ukrainians who are willing to fight and die for their sovereignty and their freedom, uh, to to defeat Russia and not let Russia get away with this. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't have scrutiny of any of the expenditures. The things that the U.S. and say, you know, the countries that have good armaments like the United States, Britain, France, Italy even has some, some those armaments uh, we can give. There's other countries that don't have the armaments. 
But some of those smaller countries, I've found, particularly the Baltic countries, that proportionally they're 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 doing their best. They're they're punching beyond their weight class, and uh, and I th- and I think we should insist on it. I know in the past NATO, some NATO countries did not uh, do their two percent as they promised. Uh, let's make sure they're doing that now. But the, the point is, is is get them to do it, but not grouse and whine about that. Show the proper moral leadership and also the material strength that we can provide. And in fact, Germany didn't want to do the tanks unless the U.S. said we'll put in uh, the Abrams tanks. What the, and the Abrams tanks actually are not as useful as the German Leopard tanks for for the for for that theater in in ukraine against the russians that's right but the u.s can show leadership and then that helps some who uh may need added uh impetus or backbone uh, to do it as well but i think that people of europe uh recognize what's at stake here and i think they're they're pitching in and uh then the problem is is you you have the you know the, the russia russia's all their revenues are from oil and gas and you have some of these countries uh like particularly uh, China, that you know they live great. We'll just pay less for the gasoline from the oil from there, and we got to make sure our friends in the largest democracy in the world, India, uh, don't end up being a customer that ends up funding Russia's war machine. Absolutely, we really appreciate your clear insights and how you've articulated the importance of American leadership at such a time like this and what Reagan would do, what President Reagan would do, right. uh, affirming peace through strength, but in times like this here, intervening uh, for a just cause, as Margaret Thatcher had laid out when she intervened on behalf of those in the Balkans at that stage. So we truly appreciate your clear insights. Governor Allen, we thank you so much for joining us on America's Roundtable. And for our listeners, we just want you to uh, certainly be aware of uh, the tremendous work that Governor Allen is accomplishing through the states and the convention of the states. And uh, Mr. Allen served uh, the Commonwealth of Virginia for more than 20 years as governor and in both bodies of the United States Congress and as a delegate holding Thomas Jefferson's seat in the Virginia General Assembly. Thank you so much, Governor Allen. Thank you, Governor Allen. Thank you, Joel and Natasha. It's always a great pleasure to be with both of you all and and all your great listeners. And as Patrick Henry would say, he was Virginia's first governor, give me liberty. This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit in partnership with Lancer Broadcasting Corporation and Supertalk Mississippi Media. Thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. I'm Joel Adinsami, your co-host, joined by economist Natasha Serdorch, co-founder of International Leaders Summit and the Jerusalem Leaders Summit. America's Roundtable guests include leading voices from business, government, media, energy, technology, healthcare, and the broad policy arena. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, and Spotify. Visit America's Roundtable at americasrt.com. americasrt.com. Follow us on Facebook, America's Roundtable, and Twitter at americasrt. We invite donors and advertisers to reach us by visiting our website, americasrt.com. Welcome to America's Roundtable.